Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 1. And uh, we'll read that together here in just a second. Mark chapter 1. Perfect, thank you, just like that. Uh, We're going to be in verses 14 and 15 this morning. Some of you are getting nervous because I think this is week 3 or 4 and we're still in chapter 1. And we're just doing two verses today. But don't worry, we will pick up the pace here starting next week. Pastor Michelle preaches, so she'll be sure to keep us moving along. Um, But I'd like to invite you to please stand uh, to honor the reading of God's Word. Just two verses today, and so I'm going to ask that we actually read this together uh, out loud. Let's read. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the Word of God. And you can be seated. Uh, so this verse, uh, 14, marks a transition point in uh, our text so far. The focus, Mark's focus so far, has been on uh, John the Baptist, the one who has been preparing the way of the Lord. And now, in verse 14, we have a transition. After John was put in prison. Jesus went into Galilee. We're going to learn more about what happened to John when we get to chapter 6. Mark is probably not trying to be exactly chronologically accurate here. Instead, he's wanting us to see this clear transition from John's ministry of preparing the way for Jesus to Jesus now beginning his ministry. With John's ministry, Mark has shown us the continuity between God's promises to his people in the Old Testament and now the fulfillment of those promises with John and now with Jesus. What has been spoken by Isaiah and Malachi hundreds of years before was now coming to pass. A messenger had prepared the way for God's Savior who would lead the people in a new exodus into freedom. So John's ministry is ending, and Jesus' ministry is beginning. I think we have a map of the, uh, the region here that we're talking about. Mark tells us that Jesus went into Galilee. So at the bottom of the map, you can see the region of Judea. This is where John was baptizing on the Jordan River. People were coming, uh, the text tells us, from the whole region of Judea and from Jerusalem to the uh, Jordan River in order to be baptized. Now, if you look north, you'll see uh, the region of Galilee, and then kind of to the uh, underneath the word Galilee, you see the city of Nazareth. Mark tells us that Jesus came from Nazareth. This is his hometown, and now he has returned to the region of Galilee. That little area there is where Jesus will do most of his ministry uh, before he heads back to Jerusalem toward the end of his life. A Galilee was Galilee was sort of known as a backwater. It was not a place that people would necessarily be proud to be from. You could tell someone from Galilee because they had a strong accent. This is one of the reasons why people know that Peter had been with Jesus. When Jesus is arrested, they could recognize in his voice that he was from this region of Galilee. Last week I mentioned that there was a time when Caesar crucified 2,000 people from Galilee. That wasn't an accident. Galilee was known for its revolutionary spirit. Insurrectionists came from this region. And so Jesus returns to his hometown in Nazareth in the region of Galilee, and he begins his ministry. Mark tells us that Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Uh, Who remembers the other word for good news? Gospel. 
these words can be interchangeably, used interchangeably, gospel or good news. And Jesus goes into Galilee proclaiming the good news or the gospel of God. Now you might remember that uh, this word gospel was a common one in Jesus' day. It was one used often by the emperor to proclaim something that was supposed to be good news. Good news for the entire empire. Maybe it was the birth of an heir to Caesar or of a, a victory on some far-flung a battlefield. This would have been a gospel in that context. Of course, a gospel, when it came to the empire, was only good news to some people, right? It wasn't good news to the people who had been conquered. It wasn't necessarily good news to people who had been overtaxed under Caesar and would probably be overtaxed under Caesar's heir. It was good news for some people. Uh, Biblical scholar William Lane says a gospel was a, a historical event, the proclamation of a historical event which was introducing a new situation for the world. Now, we're going to see how Jesus defines his gospel in the next verse. But for now, in verse 14, Mark tells us that Jesus' gospel is the good news of who? Of God. Now, this is not kind of a throwaway line. Mark is making very clear that Jesus' gospel is not Caesar's gospel. This gospel is distinct. People knew the word gospel, and they associated it with Caesar. Mark says, no, this is a gospel of God. This is not the empire's good news. Jesus goes to the very heart of insurrection against Rome, and he proclaims a gospel that is in opposition to Rome's gospel. These are going to be the very first words we hear from Jesus. Have you noticed that? We haven't heard Jesus say anything yet. Up to this point, we've seen Jesus. We've not heard him say anything. These will be his very first words. And so in this context, I think there's a couple of things to really pay attention to. First, Jesus' gospel is really important. Mark begins his book in, in the first couple of verses. This is the beginning of the gospel of the good news about Jesus. That's how he begins the book. And now he has Jesus's very first words being about his gospel. So Mark clearly thinks that Jesus's gospel matters. It's very important. We should pay attention to that. The second thing we should notice is maybe a question, which is, what does Jesus mean by gospel? How will Jesus define his gospel? We know it's going to be different than Rome's gospel. This is the gospel of God. We know that it will be connected to Jesus being the Messiah and the Son of God. That's how Mark introduced us to Jesus. But how, in his own words, out of his own mouth, will Jesus define his gospel? Well, so let's get to that in verse 15. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news, or repent and believe the gospel. The time has come. Jesus confirms this transition from John's season of ministry to his own. After hundreds of years of waiting, God is now acting definitively to keep his promises. Repent, Jesus says, and believe the good news. Believe the gospel. Now, the the empire's gospel didn't really require its citizens to to change in any kind of way. The empire's gospel would be proclaiming something that might happen to you, but it wouldn't require a change in you. 
So just think about how we hear news coming out of Washington, D.C., or news coming out of Springfield, right? It might affect us. It, it, it might in, in some way change our situation, and many of us are experiencing that right now with the news coming out of Springfield. It's going to have an impact on us, but the news out of D.C. or Springfield doesn't necessarily require a change in us. Does that make sense? This is not the case with Jesus' gospel. Because the gospel Jesus proclaims, apparently, is going to require belief and repentance. Apparently, this gospel is going to require faith, believe, and it's going to require action, repent. Jesus is announcing a specific event, and it's of a variety that cannot be received passively. Those who hear Jesus' gospel are going to have to respond in some way. So, what is Jesus' gospel? What is the good news? It's going to take us the whole of Mark's gospel to answer that question. But but for now, Mark is giving us, I would say, the heart of Jesus' gospel. And we can see it if we look closely at verse 15. I, I think we have a slide that pulls. Okay, good. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So I want you to kind of see how Mark is structuring his language here and what our eye is drawn to. Let's look at the next slide. Again, you guys are amazed by my graphic skills, right? It's amazing. Yeah, okay. So trying to help us to see what's Mark directing our attention to. The time has come. What time has come? The time for the kingdom of God. What good news requires repentance and belief? The good news about the kingdom of God. I think there's not, this is not accidental. We're meant to be sort of drawn to this word kingdom. In both the opening language about the time having come and then the response of responding to the good news, both of these things are centered around the kingdom of God has come. So here it is. These first uh, 15 verses, Mark builds up to this climactic moment. He's pointed us back to Exodus, to Isaiah, to Malachi, and they're longing for a Messiah. He's highlighted John the Baptist, who 400 years after God's silence, announces the word of the Lord. He shows Jesus being baptized in the Jordan, anointed by the Holy Spirit, rejoiced over God by God in heaven. He shows us Jesus going into the wilderness in a preview of the cosmic battle being waged on the cross for our salvation. All of this is building to this moment, to Jesus' first words, the proclamation of God's good news, and it is the kingdom of God has come near. And we all lose our minds in excitement, right? We all just go crazy. This is the best thing I've ever heard. Or, or are we maybe a little confused? Maybe a bit let down. It's all building to this. The kingdom of God has come near. In 2001, uh, there was this advertising campaign th- throughout the year, built for months. And it was, it, we didn't know what it was advertising. It was, it was intentionally kind of vague And it was this thing that was going to change our lives, this new technology, this new way of doing this thing. And but 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 they wouldn't tell you. But we all wanted to know. And there was 
speculation about what it would be, and, and Steve Jobs got to see this new thing, and he said, it's going to be as big as the personal computer, and this other tech guy got to see it, and he said, this thing is going to be bigger than the internet, and finally, in December of 2001, this thing was unveiled, anybody remember what it was? The Segway Scooter. And everybody went, what? And we promptly moved on with our lives. I'm guessing most of us still haven't been on a Segway scooter unless you've taken one of those tours around downtown uh, Chicago. In which case, I might have been chuckling at you as you were doing this back and forth thing. Is this what's happening? Is Jesus' announcement the first century equivalent of marketing hype? Of the Segway scooter? All this has happened. We've been waiting for hundreds of years. Now God is acting. Here's Jesus' first words. The kingdom of God has drawn near. And my guess would be if most of us were reading through Mark on our own, we'd read right past that and just keep on moving. It falls flat for us. It seems to me that that either uh, the gospel that Jesus is proclaiming just isn't all that, or we're missing something here. Now we've looked at the two sentences surrounding this gospel statement. Let's look more closely at the statement itself. The kingdom of God has come near. What do we need to know about this word kingdom? If you're a note taker, I'm going to say three things about the kingdom. I'm just going to tell them to you right now. First, God's kingdom is eternal. Second, God's kingdom is where his will is done. And third, you have a kingdom. God's kingdom is eternal. God's kingdom is where his will is done. And you have a kingdom. The psalmist in Psalm 145 and 13 says about God, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Jesus is not announcing a new kingdom. He's not announcing a new thing. He is instead announcing something new about God's kingdom. The kingdom, God's kingdom, has been in existence. It's an eternal kingdom. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard uh, writes this about the kingdom. He says, The kingdom has existed from the moment of creation and will never end. It cannot be shaken, and it is totally good. It has never been in trouble and never will be. It is not something that human beings produce or ultimately can hinder. We do have an invitation to be a part of it, but if we refuse, we only hurt ourselves. God's eternal kingdom exists and thrives apart from you and me. God's kingdom just is because this is God's creation. This is God's universe. Amen? God's kingdom is eternal. God's kingdom is where his will is done. Now, last week we saw the scene in the Jordan when Jesus is baptized and he comes up out of the water and the text tells us that the heavens are torn open and he hears his father's voice joyfully speaking over him. And we said that in the Bible, heaven is the place where God's will is perfectly done. It's the same thing with God's kingdom. The Bible uses this language kind of interchangeably to talk about the place where God's will is perfectly done. Well, what does that actually look like? What does it look like when God's will is done? We pray for this in the Lord's Prayer. Would we know it? If we saw it, 
And I would say that there are, are two major categories of God's perfect and good will. We see these throughout the Old Testament. We see it again and again in Jesus' life and in his teaching. And they're simply this, worship and justice. Say worship and justice. This is what it looks like when God's will is done perfectly. And one of the ways that you can see this is when you read the Old Testament and they are uh, uh, Old Testament prophets and they're speaking against Judah or Israel, oftentimes their pronouncements will fall into one of those two categories. They are speaking against injustice or they are speaking against idolatry. Either the worship is off or the justice is off. In God's kingdom, when his will is done perfectly, there is justice and there is worship. Amen? Let's talk about worship. In God's kingdom, only God is worshipped. In God's kingdom, only God is worshipped. Back in 2005, David Foster Wallace, who's a a novelist and an essayist, uh, he he passed away a few years ago, he gave a commencement speech. And and, and in it he said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. It's a very biblical idea. He was not speaking biblically. He wasn't speaking as a Christian. That's a very biblical idea that there is in the day-to-day existence the reality that all of us worship something. Our choice is who or what we will worship. We have to give allegiance to somebody. We have to find our identity somewhere. The question is never if we worship, but who or what we are worshiping. And in God's kingdom, where his will is perfectly done, only God is worshipped. In God's kingdom, there are no idols, there are no false gods. And so, there's no spiritual enslavement. There's no shame. There's no addiction. There's no self-hatred in God's kingdom. In the kingdom of God, there is no deception. There is no lying. And so there's no place for anything or anyone to claim our worship. In the kingdom of God, it is abundantly clear that only Yahweh is worthy of worship. Only the creator is worthy of worship. Only the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit deserves our worship. Everything else in the universe, in the rightly ordered kingdom of God, everything, everyone who you and I are tempted to worship has to take its rightful, subordinated place before God. And so that means that in the kingdom of God, you can commit to your work without worshiping your job. In the kingdom of God, you can love her without worshiping her. In the kingdom of God, you can sacrifice for your children without revolving your entire lives around them. In the kingdom of God, you can enjoy good food and good drink without worshiping them. In the kingdom of God, we can be amazed at the beauty of God's creation without worshiping it. In the kingdom, only God is worshipped. And so you and I are freed to enjoy and appreciate and commit to this life without turning things into idols that will only let us down and enslave us. In the kingdom of God, only 
God is worshipped. Amen? With me so far? Justice. In God's kingdom, God's justice is unopposed. Next week, uh, when Pastor Michelle preaches, we're going to see that Jesus' first uh, action is to liberate a spiritually oppressed person. Jesus is about justice throughout the Gospel of Mark. And just like worship, when it comes to justice, there's a continuity between Jesus' life and the Old Testament expectations of God's people. Israel was called to be a people who welcomed the foreigner and the refugee. They were called to be a people who took a a Sabbath rest as a reminder that they were no longer slaves in Egypt, but they had an identity that was given to them by God. They were called to be a people who left a portion of the crops unharvested so that the poor among them would always have enough to eat. Can we even imagine such a situation today? They were called to be a people who every a certain amount of years would turn over any land that had been sold so that nobody would be destitute and without property. This is who God's people were called to be. You see, in the kingdom of God, where God's will is perfectly accomplished, God's justice is unopposed. Uh, yesterday, uh, Marcus, many of you know Marcus who works here at the, at the Park District. He and I had lunch together. I just wanted to talk about kind of youth in our neighborhood and how we can be supportive to what they're doing and how we can collaborate together. He had a great lunch. Um, as we were sitting down, Marcus was on the phone with a 15-year-old young man from our neighborhood who had uh, a few minutes earlier been jumped and stomped and had his uh, Beats headphone taken from him. And so throughout our meeting, Marcus is kind of on and off the phone trying to de-escalate the situation so that it doesn't turn into something worse than had already happened. As we're sitting there talking, all of a sudden Marcus jumps up from his chair and he runs outside. I'm like, okay. (laughs) He comes back in about eight minutes later and he said, I noticed a couple guys walking by the window. I couldn't see him because my back was to the window. And they made eyes at my son. They stared at my son. And I could just tell. So he said, I ran out the door to, to check in on them, to confront them, to assure them that there, there was not going to be any issue. One of the, the young people had a gun who he was talking to, so he confronted that situation. Then after our lunch, uh, we go to the uh, police district station in our area to have a conversation with the commander about uh, how to, to be um, a more helpful presence around the park district late at night when a youth programming is being let out here. It was not a it's not a helpful conversation, I'll put it that way. So, so, so in the kingdom of God, none of that would have happened. Is that specific enough? In the kingdom of God, none of that would have happened. Because in God's kingdom, God's will is done and his justice reigns. You see, in the kingdom of God, our young men are mentored and they're loved And they're given dreams and visions for their future that they can actually see in the lives of the adults who are walking with them. In the kingdom, there are no illegal gun shops in the back of neighborhood storefronts in our city. There are no legal gun shops set up on the Illinois-Indiana border strategically to flood our streets with untraceable bullets. 
in the kingdom of God besieged, young people aren't vilified for carrying guns for their own protection while we arm our law enforcement with military-grade weapons to keep those same young people in their place. In the kingdom of God, the racist history of America's law enforcement is acknowledged and rejected And our police officers are equipped and encouraged to work with community members who actually want to work with them. I might have lost like half of you right then. That's okay. I got at least half of you with me right now? Okay. In the kingdom, God alone is worshipped and God's justice is unopposed. But of course, you and I can see countless ways that God is not worshipped in our world and where God's justice is opposed on a regular basis. And so though his kingdom is eternal and though his kingdom is the place where God's perfect will is done, there's one last thing for us to say about this word kingdom. And it's that you and I have kingdoms. Now, this is actually a good thing. Every human being has a kingdom. And again, let me quote from Dallas Willard to flesh this idea out a little bit. He writes, our kingdom, he's talking to you now, is simply the range of our effective will. Whatever we genuinely have say over is in our kingdom. And our having say over something is precisely what places it within our kingdom. In creating human beings, God made them, God made us to rule, to reign, to have dominion over, key word, a limited sphere. Only so can they be persons. In other words, as human beings created in the image of God, we are made to steward our small, limited kingdoms in harmony with God's eternal kingdom. What does that look like? It looks like taking care of your body. It looks like eating the right kinds of things. Getting a little bit of exercise now. And you, that, is, that includes the range of your effective will. Amen? That includes nourishing our minds. What are we watching? What are we reading? What are we spending our time online doing? That is part of your effective will. That's part of the kingdom God has entrusted you with. It means watching over those who are under your care. If you're a parent, if you're an auntie, if you're an uncle, if you're a grandparent, those little people are a part in some way of your kingdom. It means being a good neighbor. It means knowing what's going on on your block because you live in that space. You have some sort of say and influence in that place. And we could go on and on. Our effective will, our small kingdoms, lead to flourishing when our kingdoms are marked by worship and justice. By the worship and the justice that characterize God's kingdom. That's how it's meant to be. As the Bible shows, as your experience and my experience confirms, rather than stewarding our small kingdoms with God, we enlarge our kingdoms by stealing from our neighbors. We enlarge our kingdoms through our own power apart from God. We become like the builders at Babel 
who refused to participate in God's stewardship for the creation and instead used their technology to increase their own power. We're like Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who rejected the elders' advice and instead chose to increase the burden and taxes and labor on his subjects. We're captivated by the pundits and the hucksters of our day who promise to increase our possessions to increase our status, to increase our pleasure without ever pulling back the curtain and showing who's being exploited for our own gain. When we enlarge our kingdoms through our own force of will, there's always going to be one inevitable result. We will reduce the size and the vitality of our neighbor's kingdom. We trade stewarding with God for stealing from our neighbor. And so if human flourishing involves our small kingdoms working in harmony with God's kingdom, then when we enlarge our small kingdoms through our warped strategies, we will end up literally dehumanizing other people. Because when the kingdom God has given you is taken away from you by others, you are literally being dehumanized. Your ability to reflect the image of God in you is diminished. Any attempt at ruling our kingdoms, at governing our wills, any attempt that is not submitted to God's will will absolutely damage somebody else. You and I do not have the creative capacity to rule justly out of our own strength. So the result is that while God's kingdom is eternal and it is secure, our own deformed kingdoms are wreaking havoc in our world, on our neighbors, and on ourselves. We can see this all around us in the refugee crisis, in unequal education opportunities. This week, a father told me that his son recently told him that it would be easier for him to to buy a gun than it would be to get an iPad that he could have a gun delivered to his house within an hour if he wanted it. We see this all around us in violence against women writ small and large throughout our entire society and culture. We know this to be true. And especially in our city, we see the effects of our dehumanizing wills and kingdoms run amok in the massive racial disparities in this country, and in Chicago. Okay, maybe I've lost like three quarters of you now. Do I have at least a quarter? Do I have at least a quarter? At least a quarter? When Jesus announces the nearness of God's kingdom, what does he do? He calls them to repent. So, So the invitation here is to turn away from the injustice and the idolatry of our own sinful kingdoms and to turn instead to God's kingdom. The invitation is to align our wills, to align our small, limited, God-given kingdoms with God's eternal and unending kingdom. That's the invitation. This uh, call to repentance has all kinds of implications that we could spend weeks on, but for New Community Covenant Church here in Bronzeville, there's a particular flavor to our repentance. 
God has called us, has called this community to be a light on a hill that shows the unity and the reconciliation that's supposed to be normal in the kingdom of God. In a segregated and a divided city, this this diverse community is supposed to stand out. We're supposed to be weird. That is great consolation to about 10% of us in the room. And Finally, I found my people. We're supposed to be weird. We're not supposed to fit neatly into anybody's box. In a city that is marked by violent and destructive divisions, New Community Covenant Church, you are called to be so strangely different that people have to ask about it. And we have to explain the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in order to explain who we are. And the unity and reconciliation that God has given us, we worship and we seek justice as evidence that God's kingdom has come near. So this means that if new community is going to be your church home, This means that if new community is your church community, then you can expect to be called to repent very regularly. And everybody said amen to that. I don't mean that when Pastor Michelle gets up here next week, she's going to pound the podium and call you to repent, though she might, and that'd be okay. You need to pay attention if she does. I do mean that that simply by virtue of who we are together, by virtue of our commitment to racial justice and reconciliation as evidence of God's kingdom, that we will naturally have to have a spirit of repentance among each and every one of us. What does that look like? I'm very glad you asked, Crystal. Let me share. Let me give one specific example that is incredibly important for our church to confront and address very, very regularly. And it has to do with the the, the socially uh, constructed racial category of whiteness. It just gets quieter and quieter in here. Sorry. We live in a uh, very racialized society and country where the social construct, the category of racial whiteness has been made our cultural standard. It's, it's our neutral. It's how we measure what it means to be a person and to be normal in America. Yes? Okay. Um, this has all sorts of destructive implications. Um, but, but one of the things this means is that, that every one of us experiences reality on a daily basis. Some of us aren't aware of it. Every one of us experiences reality on a daily basis. Some of us find that in in this culture and in this country, uh, our bodies and our cultural assumptions are affirmed blatantly or tacitly. White men, and and slightly to a lesser extent white women because of the the deeply rooted sexism uh, uh, that exists in our country, uh, white men and white women go through our days with ease, and a mindlessness that's only possible when the dominant culture mirrors your body, mirrors your history, and mirrors your expectations. Okay, some of you can say amen. Like, you know what I mean? Okay. 
Some of us, on the other hand, find that, that our bodies and experiences are threatened and rejected. Tanahashi Coates talks about the experience of African American people in this country as the plundering of bodies, as the sheer terror of disembodiment. Black people in America have not simply been portrayed by the dominant culture as different from white people. No, the dominant culture has and continues to slander black women and men. Telling lies that, as we saw earlier, steal violently from people's God-given kingdoms. Amen? And then some of us find ourselves in America's strange in-between territory. The distinctions of your culture and your family and your history have been reduced to vague and broad categories. Native American, Hispanic, Latino, Asian American, and on we could go. Those in our country who have an accent are treated as interlopers and as threats. And boy, have we seen this recently. The dominant culture will accept you if you pursue the values of whiteness while ignoring its atrocities. And Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As a church, we have to be incredibly clear that racial hierarchy and injustices that pass for acceptable in our country are not representative of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is the place where everybody is, is invited to experience God's freedom in worship of the one God. God's kingdom is the place where everybody, regardless of race, ethnicity, class, gender, where everybody experiences God's righteous justice. If this is true, then we must have the courage to look this country square in the face and say, the time has come. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the good news. This also means that that every one of us must regularly, personally hear this call to repentance. When we come to worship, when we come to our community groups, when we come to serve our neighbors together, we each must be called to repent away from our broken and destructive kingdoms and repent into Jesus and his kingdom of worship and justice. What this means very practically is that at New Community Covenant Church in Bronzeville, whiteness cannot be the acceptable standard by which we are each measured. I got a yes. Can I get an amen? And and can I talk to my white brothers and sisters for a second? The rest of you all can listen. Here's what this means for you and me. We will be uncomfortable here. We are not used to being uncomfortable in this country. In fact, we are used to seeing what we want to see, what we think we need to see, feeling what we think we need to see and want to feel. That cannot be and will not be true in this place. Because in this space, 
this falsely destructive construct of some random racial category of whiteness will be resisted. The only question for you and for me as white people is not whether we'll be uncomfortable, because we will. If we are doing it right, we will be uncomfortable. The only question for us is whether we will come to welcome that discomfort as the Spirit's activity and presence in our lives. And if you need help, have a conversation with your uh, uh, black and brown uh, community members around you who will have a lot to say to you about experiencing God's presence in the midst of discomfort. Amen? Okay, the rest of you can listen in now. This is really good now. Keep going. This also means that a new community, we need to hear every one of your voices very clearly. We especially need to hear our accented voices that get drowned out out there. We also need some of you, let me say this, some of you to repent away from the model minority lie and to repent into the person God has made you to be which includes all of your particularities of your family, your history, your culture, and on and on and on. Amen? It also means that a new community covenant church, we need to be a community that is safe and and holy and where healing happens, where people can come and, and repent away from the lies they've been told all week can repent from the prejudice systems that have tried to claim your body all week long. Repentance for for you might look like turning in relief and joy to the God who welcomes you. Because you know very clearly that the kingdom of this culture and this society and this world is bankrupt. So we come here to this place and repent into the kingdom of God, which is for you joy and peace and affirmation. You, just as you are, just as God made you to be. So, I'm done. I would like to say that Jesus' announcement was not a letdown. I'd like to say that Jesus' announcement was not the first century century equivalent of the Segway scooter marketing hype. I I think his announcement was, in fact, the the best possible news. I, I think his gospel actually changes everything for us. Jesus has thrown open the doors to the kingdom through his atoning death and his victorious resurrection. The kingdom of God is near. Why? Because the king has come. The only question for us is whether we will repent. Whether we will turn away from the idolatry and justice of this world and turn into Jesus and his kingdom. It's good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. Let's pray. Worship team, come on up. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that there's just not enough we can say about your gospel. We thank you that we can talk about the cross and all that was accomplished for us when your son willingly went there on our behalf to take upon himself all of uh, the judgment 
uh, that was due us for our rebellion, for enlarging our kingdoms by dehumanizing the people you created. We thank you that your gospel includes your victorious resurrection where death could not hold you, the enemy could not claim you, and you raised a victorious over sin, death, and evil for our salvation. But we thank you today, we thank you today especially, that your gospel includes your kingdom. And we thank you that this is not a kingdom that we have to wait for. This is not a kingdom that we just have to to wonder about, but that this is a kingdom, it's not here completely, we're waiting for you, Jesus, but this is a kingdom that has come and the doors to it have been thrown wide open. And so for every single one of us today, God, I pray that your spirit would call us to repent. Would call us to turn away from any place of brokenness, any place of idolatry, any place of injustice. I pray for my sisters and brothers right now who are feeling worn down and beat up by the kingdoms of this world. And I pray that they would repent into your open arms. That they would repent into God's kingdom of mercy and righteousness and holiness and healing and justice today. That they would find in you and in your kingdom coming near every prayer answered, every hope fulfilled, every broken place healed and made right, all old things made new. Those of us this morning who knowingly or or in some way unknowingly have been contributing to the dehumanizing of our neighbors, we pray that the call would be to repent away from that, to receive your forgiveness, to find our our place in this people who are seeking to, 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 to chart out your kingdom here on earth. So allow the message of your kingdom to be the best, best news for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Invite our ushers to come forward to receive the offering this morning. I'll pray for that and then just a couple other things and we'll continue to worship. God, thank you for your generosity. Let us be generous to you. As we come toward uh, the end of 2015, God, we just want to say thank you again for meeting all of our needs above and beyond our imaginations. God, continue to to increase uh, our capacity to serve you well, both through uh, what we give, but also through our lives uh, opened up before you. In Jesus' name, amen.